a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Once again, I welcome you to the show. Whether you're a longtime listener or a newfound wrong thinker, I'm glad you're part of our audience. And I'm going to do my very best to make it worth your while today with thoughtful, hopefully inspiring commentary that in the end leaves you more sure of who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against or who you need to be angry about. So welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by HSLAmmo.com and also by Pure Light, these amazing LED light bulbs that actually destroy odors and germs and, and clean. They do the job of a $1,000 air purification system. Sound too good to be true? No, no. I'm, I'm serious. You can, you can find out more about this. Click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, pure-light.com. And it'll, it'll take you right to their website, and you can see for yourself. We also thank Monticello College and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. All right, where to begin? Let's start here. 2021 is quickly becoming the year of the censor. I mean, how many people, how many companies, you know, how many platforms are very concerned that whatever content is going out there, it better not be controversial, even if, you know, it was fine last week. These are the times we live in. Thomas Luongo says, This uh, year of the censor spells danger as well as opportunity for these platforms that make it possible for controversial content creators to thrive without having to wear an ideological filter. Things like Patreon and, and others. He says, 2021 is quickly shaping up to be the year of the censor. And already this year, we've seen the best of our journalists driven out of high-profile positions and going independent. I like that he uses Glenn Greenwald as a perfect example of this. Uh, Glenn Greenwald was forced out of the company. He helped found The Intercept and has become his own, you know, independent substack uh, content creator, which is a good thing because Glenn is one of the greatest journalists out there today. Then you also have Matt, T uh, Matt Taibbi, Taibbi leaving Rolling Stone, a good indicator the days of the independent voice in media is being driven underground. Now, even with them gone to newcomer Substack, that hasn't satisfied the gatekeepers of political correctness who just want them unable to make a living. Hey, we're just trying to crush their ability to live and to thrive. And Luongo says if they can silence voices that large, then that has chilling implications for smaller voices. He says, for a creator like me, there's real risk in tying my livelihood to a platform like Patreon, whose history with hosting controversial material is spotty, to say the least. But he says, Patreon's been walking this path for a couple of years now, but with its recent spate of bans, it's quickly morphing into a company without a future, a company with a permanently damaged brand. And he says, for the record, I consider this a real shame. What began as a platform for creators to bypass the publishing gatekeepers that guys like Taibi and Greenwald fought the good fight against for years has sadly morphed into a platform more interested in sanitizing the creative drive of budding artists rather than nurturing it. 
Thomas Luongo says, I say this as a person who saw Patreon as my best option when I went independent back in early 2017. Even then, there were signs that cancel culture would reach deeper and deeper into alternative media. What started with the deplatforming of alt-right Nazis during the 2016 presidential campaign quickly escalated into the war on disinformation from gadflies and performance artists like Milo Yiannopoulos and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos rather and Alex Jones. Jones was targeted, <clears throat> excuse me, because of his coverage of the Sandy Hook tragedy. He was the test case to gauge the level of public pushback against removing a dissident voice from the public forum. The story of Twitter alternative Gab, whose only crime is strictly adhering to the First Amendment and the Supreme Court's limits on it, is even worse than Jones's story. Patreon lost major revenue streams a lot from people like Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin over Patreon's treatment of Carl, a Sargon of Akkad, Benjamin. Rubin would go on to build a Patreon alternative, Locals, in response. By the end of the Trump administration, big tech censorship kicked into high gear further extending the argument about protecting public safety from, quote, bad information into the public health narrative surrounding COVID-19. This is what got other major investigative journalists like Whitney Webb, John Corbett, Vanessa Beely, and others removed from Patreon recently. Their coverage of COVID-19, the vaccines, and the political impulses behind them. But that's the current line in the sand for big tech platforms. Cross it and get deplatformed. He says, I'm not saying it's right. It's not. But that's the state of play. He says the lesson for all purveyors of any counter-narrative at this point is they must be aware of the ever-shifting line if they want to continue having a voice. And then he says this brings me to the crux of the problem. What do we do about it as consumers and producers? Patreon's supposed to be a middleman. He says I get that they only want to host certain kinds of content, as is their right as a business. Crowdfunding is a powerful tool. And he says, I saw it validated firsthand when the legendary rock band and, and a personal favorite, Marillion's fans, accidentally created it during, their, during uh, funding their uh, 1997 tour of the U.S. And then the band itself, by asking for the production costs of their 2001 album, Anarachnophobia, up front. He says, this was the first instance of a fan base and a creator openly working together without the middleman taking all the profit. And so he says, I jumped at the chance to back their next project, the incredible album Marbles, and every crowdfunded project thereafter to support their assault on the rapacious record industry. Now, Luongo says the goal was simple. Use the funds to become their own recording and distribution company, freeing themselves from the wants of a label. It not only worked, but it was also the proof of concept that spawned an entire industry. It turned the entire business model for artists on its head. Now an artist could keep most of the revenue their work generated versus the other way around. Now unit sales in the thousands or even hundreds, priced properly, could sustain an artist rather than needing to reach the millions the big distribution houses supposedly had access to. The board game industry is going through a boom like never before. That's because of Kickstarter. Boutique games with insane production values can make it to the market, turning a labor of love into a shared reality. But he says, when your art, however, is journalism or political commentary, in a world becoming increasingly polarized politically, and when those in power are paranoid about losing control over the public narrative, unfortunately, all bets are off. Now those people like me, he says, are faced with the very real threat of crossing the line and losing our lives. Now because stifling dissent is the last resort of a tyrant and a scoundrel, 
And that's uh, and there's pressure, he says, on companies like Patreon and banks to cancel those out of political favor. So in this kind of environment, he says, it's nearly impossible to tell the difference between a company helping the censorship willingly or just going along under the threat of extinction themselves. And Thomas Luongo says, as a libertarian, I believe strongly that companies, like people, have the right to deny someone being its customer. Freedom of association implies freedom from association. But he says, I also understand the reality that the playing field is tilted towards those who that control access, not just to the Internet bandwidth, but also the banking system. And when those people are also the same ones who control the government and the media, well, there's no safe space for anyone who speaks their mind openly. So it's one thing for Apple to deny Parler or Gab an app on their app store. He says, I don't agree with it, but I get it. But it's quite another for a bank to deny them service because of the threat of retribution from government, which is what's happening here. As a creator tied to Patreon today, he says, I want to continue validating not just my own business model, but also Patreon's. As I thrive, they thrive. I see them not just as a service provider, but as a partner in my business. I want them to make decisions which support the rights of all creators, to have a voice in the marketplace of ideas, including those they disagree with or even despise. That's what the First Amendment is supposed to protect. If those ideas are terrible, then let them not flourish. And if the information is untrue, then let them bear the consequences of that as well in court. He says, I've been inundated with notices from current and potential patrons that they won't do business with Patreon because of their latest abrogation of the public trust. They want to support people they respect. They want fairness brought back to the playing field and let the best ideas win. After four years of consistent attacks by the undeserved self-righteousness of the woke mob and the tyrants who support them, they want to exercise the only power they feel they have left in the culture war. And he says, and I fully respect that position. In fact, he says, I canceled my subscription to Netflix for this reason. But no solution today, he says, is a perfect one. There's always some part of the business that's offensive to someone else. Locals, as Dave Rubin pointed out during the assault on Parler, uses Amazon Web Services for its data hosting. So it's vulnerability. If you hate Amazon for what they did to Parler, will you boycott locals because of it? The hallmark of a free market is that it coordinates the labor and time of millions of people, most of whom wouldn't like each other if they ever met. Murray Rothbard is famous for saying, to never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article from Thomas Luongo. I found this this morning on lourockwell.com. I have been visiting lourockwell.com, I'm guessing, for pretty close to 20, 22 years, maybe a little bit more. I don't know. I've, I've been going on there for a long, long time. It's a daily news aggregator site, lots of different commentaries, lots of solid information based on the principles of freedom, free markets, private property, etc. Very principled stuff. And there's not a lot of, I mean, there's, there's, there's no marching in lockstep. This is one of the things I love. There's significant disagreement even between some of the various voices on Lou Rockwell. 
that's to me what makes it such a, an amazing resource for wrong thinkers. You want to get some good, unfiltered opinion? That's a great way to do it. And I'm sharing an article here from uh, Thomas Luongo about Patreon censorship and the self-inflicted wound. Now, in interest of full disclosure, I, I should probably have said this at the very beginning in sharing this article. This caught my eye because um, having stepped out and truly become an independent uh, content and service provider for myself, I rely on crowdfunding and I rely on Patreon. That's, that is part of, uh, of how I go about supporting myself as I do what I do. So this is of interest to me. You know, I'm looking for ways that, uh, that I can survive, who knows, maybe even thrive in the gig economy. But it's, it's tough, especially when you know that, uh, you know, your content may not uh, raise a smile on the faces of some corporate overlord somewhere who wants to see you crushed or at least unable to, to make a living from what you're doing. So again, I have a link to this in the show notes. One of the things that uh, Thomas uh, Luongo points out is he says, look, Patreon to this point has been very good to him and even to his customers, even though they're far from perfect. He says, Some of, something many of you may not realize, with the freedom to publish comes the responsibility of management. Independent producers aren't just journalists, cartoonists, and writers. They're also marketers, accountants, managers, and editors. And there's a time cost associated with the choice to walk away from Patreon or any other censorious platform. That time cost is exactly what the tyrants want us to pay. They want us distracted with their harassment, not producing content which challenges them. That's why he says, I felt this article needed to be written to remind us all what our goals are and the true face of the battle we're fighting. There's certain irony in continuing to use the very tools they think they are oppressing, oppressing us with to point out their hypocrisy. Most importantly, with the proliferation of competition and rapid adoption of cryptocurrencies as a payment layer and the blockchain as a bulwark against censorship, the days of this kind of pressure are numbered anyway. As always, the market will provide a solution. Patreon, he says, in my opinion, is committing brand suicide with its decisions today that they will not likely recover from. But he says, for now... I choose to take the high road and treat Patreon the way they've treated me. There is no profit for anyone in borrowing trouble that may never come. Because that would be the biggest self-inflicted wound of all. This was originally printed in Daily Liberty News. It's uh, been reprinted on LewRockwell.com. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to get you stirred up here or anything, but I will say one of my goals is not just to, to build an audience of people who will listen and, and share this information, but uh, I'll, I'll confess, my deeper goal is not to create followers. It's to create leaders. I want more people to do what I'm doing. Because I believe that decentralization of uh, truth speakers, if you will, or at least people who are willing to provide independent, unfiltered, you know, uncensored content is more important than ever. Not everybody wants to do that. So there's, there's the good news. Your competition is limited in the sense that not everybody feels comfortable, you know, doing a podcast or writing a blog or something like that. And maybe it's just the circles that I run in, but I encounter more and more people who not only have an interest in it, but curiously, they feel almost a divine calling to step up and use their voice to help inform or persuade or inspire or encourage the people around them. 
And if you are one of those people, then I want you to know you're exactly the person I want to be talking to. You're the person who I want to be sending encouragement to. And and if necessary, I, I would encourage you, reach out to me. You know, you have the opportunity. Go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look down there at the very bottom of the page. You can comment. You can reach out to me. I will respond. Trust me. I'm not popular enough yet that I'm overwhelmed with, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of requests of people. Brian, what can I do? How can I do this? Um, it's, it's still a pretty intimate affair. So <laughs> you reach out to me and I can promise you're going to get a response. But if you're one of those people who has a message, and I don't know what your message may be. It's, you know, we all have different areas of expertise and interest and talents. But if you are looking to, to find a way to get that message out, I want to be someone who can help you, whether it's just through providing that, uh, you know, rhetorical kick in the seat of the pants that, that gets you, you know, moving in that direction. Or if you need some specific technical advice or, or knowledge, if I don't know it, I bet you I know people who could point you in the right direction. You want to start your own podcast? You want to start your own blog? You want to start something bigger and better? I say do it. Because to me, the greatest compliment that anybody can ever pay me is to go out there and become an awesome source of truth. And they always had it in them. Sometimes it just takes a little, you know, something to spark the inspiration. You know what? I shouldn't be doing that. The world needs more leaders. It does not need more followers. But those leaders, <laughs> they got to be able to, uh, they got to be able to eat. They got to be able to meet their obligations. We just added another uh, another uh, one of my kids to the car insurance. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'll, I'll stop my tale of woe right there. All right, moving on. Have you noticed how pop culture's portrayal of capitalism always seems to be slanted toward the greedy, exploitative perversion of the market that we regularly see in things like uh, crony capitalism? But if you think about it, in fact, if you actually do some of the research about it, you will see that uh, nothing has improved the cause of humanity, or at least the living standards of humanity, made life better, reduced poverty, and given opportunity to people than real, authentic, free market capitalism. It's improved the world in measurable ways. And there's a terrific piece on uh, the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is from uh, Kimberly Josephson. Five reasons Americans wrongly see big business as the victim. Or as the villain, rather. Sorry. We're the victims. We must never forget that. We're all victims of big business, or so so we're told. Now, I can tell you right now, this commentary is going to, uh, it's going to rub a few people the wrong way, just because it challenges what's a very popular narrative. You've heard it from time to while. You know, the rich just keep getting richer, and they're doing it all on our backs, and how dare these people who own these mega corporations, Jeff Bezos and so forth, look at how they're, you know, they're getting ahead. And I would just ask you to remember, um, it's true, you know, uh, Bezos is doing very well, Walmart's doing very well, and I would just ask you to consider, is, does it have anything to do with the fact that big companies, the ones that succeed in wildly amazing ways, almost always, in fact, I'll take away the almost, they always, at some level, partner with government whether it's just for permission to expand their markets or whether it's barriers that are put in place through regulation or otherwise that prevent newcomers from coming up and challenging their market share. You want to, you know, make it big in today's world? 
you got to be willing to climb into bed with government at some point and uh, begin a very long-term, very unhealthy relationship. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say unhealthy because, again, Bezos, Walmart, and others, you know, the people who stayed open, you know, the ones that were essential enough, they never would have been considered to be shut down for the pandemic. They've done quite well. Smaller businesses, uh, not so much. Got to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to share with you these five reasons Americans wrongly see big business as the villain from Kimberly Josephson. And yes, there is a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, look, I grew up watching movies like Wall Street. Well, you know, I, now that I started listing off the movies, I think uh, The Secret of My Success, you know, Business, big business particularly, is always portrayed as, you know, well, this is where the greedy, this is where the the ruthless, the Gordon Geckos of the world are out there just, uh, you know, telling us greed is good, making money hand over fist. And by the way, I know on its surface it's like, well, greed is never a good thing. Perhaps, you know, perhaps greed is one of those seven deadly sins. But there's something about motivating people that, uh, you know, becoming, uh, whether it's becoming wealthy or whether it's generating income uh, to, to help other people, that is often overlooked, and that is how much opportunity is created by the person who's an innovator, who's an entrepreneur, who starts a business. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to let Kimberly Josephson, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, spell out what we might be missing. She has five reasons Americans wrongly see big business as the villain. Kimberly says, we all aspire for some form of achievement and usually applaud those when it is first obtained. Most recently, the new Wolf of Wall Street, Whitney Wolf Hurd, has been heralded in the media as the female CEO making history and a person to aspire to. But she says, entrepreneurs beware. If you do too well for too long, perceptions of your wealth will likely shift as our culture tends to position wealth creators as greed mongers. However, it is our greed, not the entrepreneur's, that rewards them with riches. We willingly hand over our dollars for Teslas, iPhones, Prime deliveries that fulfill all kinds of needs and desires. And Kimberly Josephson says, as such, we should be thanking businesses for the options they've provided, not giving producers guilt trips for the voluntary exchanges they've enabled. So here are some contradictory reasons why we shun those who've profited the most from their success and why we should change the negative narrative. Number one, she says, we like the underdog, not the fat cat. We often celebrate and praise local businesses with shop small slogans. But if the small shop happens to develop into a franchise or attract big investors, our perceptions seem to change. Think of all those, bre- all those bands we label as sellouts for, uh, well, making sales. The presence of sustainable profits shouldn't negate all the hard groundwork it took for that entrepreneur to get things going. From unfortunate circumstances like John Paul Mitchell's rags to riches to endless trials to get the product right, such as James Dyson's 5,127 prototypes for the first bagless vacuum. 
any large business was once the small shop, and its growth is a testament that it did something right. Secondly, she says, we fail to realize that big business can be good for small business. During the 2021 Super Bowl, uh, DoorDash tugged at our heartstrings while Uber Eats took a direct approach in calling for the support of local restaurants. And although these ads are self-serving, that's okay. Our local support fuels their big business and vice versa. In fact, many small businesses source from and leverage large corporations. And as such, small firms can have a powerful influence on the larger players. The wonderful thing about a market economy is the derived demand it generates and the supporting industries it can invigorate. Many small towns house big businesses, and Forbes' list of America's best largest employers features several firms with small-town roots, providing employment opportunities that can lead to individual advancement. Number three, this is a good one, Hollywood distorts reality while raking in riches. The villainizing of venture capitalists is a common practice in films and TV series with the billionaire Batman, you know, as an exception. The media portrays CEOs as being abhorrent and corrupted by their money. But this seems rather paradoxical given that these tycoon tyrants are played by millionaire and billionaire actors who've traditionally gone unscathed for their wealth despite their more than questionable moral standards. Unlike how it's portrayed in the movies, the market is not a zero-sum game, and the rich don't profit from people being poor. Actually, many who are rich give back quite a lot. Number four, she says, we think big businesses can't be beat. Suppose monopolies don't last long in a competitive market, given that entrepreneurs play offense, resulting in industry leaders being constantly challenged. Michael Porter attests that substitutions are ever-present, but easy to overlook since it differs from the industry's leading offering. But eventually, new entrants will steal the spotlight, much like how eSports is attracting players and investors at at an impressive rate and is predicted to surpass traditional sports. Many of the top firms of yesteryear are namesakes today. That's all they are. And at present, invites to Clubhouse are making Facebook notifications look quite dated disruptions can and do happen if entry costs and regulations are manageable. Entrepreneurs leverage indirect forms of competition and launch not only innovations, but substitutions. Kodak still trying to make a comeback from phones replacing cameras. And finally, number five, concentrated wealth and power makes us uncomfortable, but in due time, even the biggest firms can become vulnerable or go bust in a free market economy. Now, the same can't be said for government-run agencies that engage in rent-seeking and seem to proliferate despite inefficiency. Although the reins on some public sectors are, are loosening, such as NASA welcoming competition, others are tightening or showing no signs of ever shifting. Think back to F.A. Hayek's criticism of the, of the monopolization of money. If we're concerned with a firm being in control of too much of a market offering, we should be more concerned with the concentration of power-wielding control over entire industries. But even the public sector can't stop private competition from providing alternatives, from cryptocurrencies challenging fiat dollars to next-day deliveries speeding past the U.S. Postal Service. Kimberly Josephson says, Our lives have only benefited from capitalism and those who harness the power of profit given the ability to scale. Profits can help support and grow an organization and serve as a buffer when times get tough. This is why many nonprofits are struggling to sustain themselves given hardships caused by COVID-19. 
and why the charge for shared value is gaining traction since business solutions can serve as social solutions if meeting a need while making a profit. Kimberly Josephson says Ludwig von Mises noted there is no Western capitalistic country in which the conditions of the masses have not improved in an unprecedented way. Wow, think about that for a moment. I believe it rings true. Now, you may disagree, but I believe it's true. And she says this is because entrepreneurs pivot according to economic contingency. So let them pivot and let us praise them for it and profit from it. Kimberly Josephson says, within the U.S., each generation has fared better than the last thanks to technological advancements and access to better ideas and resources. And despite unforeseen hardships and externalities, the profit motive has promoted progress in an unimaginable way and talent continues to emerge. And such talent should serve as an inspiration and nothing less. I don't know if you needed to hear that. I think I did. But I'm grateful for Dr. Kimberly Josephson uh, sharing her thoughts on how uh, the five reasons that Americans wrongly see big business as the villain. And it brings me to kind of an interesting thought. So forgive me as I indulge in just a little bit of a, a sidetrack here. Do you remember, or maybe you're still at that point where, where working is all about, it's all about making money. This is how we measure our success. It's, it's, you know, what's on the paycheck? What's on my uh, tax forms? What's in my bank account? That's how I define, you know, how well am I doing? Because I remember those days well. I would say I've, I've had a, a pretty long, you know, 35-plus year radio career. I would say it's, uh, it's been a good one, not a particularly illustrious or, you know, I, I, I haven't, uh, I've never hit the big time. But I've thoroughly enjoyed every moment of what I've done. And for a long time, and I'm talking for, you know, probably the first half or close to it of, of that career, I was more, you know, caught up in things like titles and paychecks and, you know, what, to, what are the outward signs of success here? And it would have been probably, well, wow, maybe it's been closer to 20 years ago. I was introduced to the idea that maybe... Just humor me on this. Maybe there's something more than simply accumulating wealth or things or, uh, you know, measuring success in, in money. I measure success in, in a very different way these days. As far as, as far as what I do for a living, how I support my family, I measure my success in terms of impact. So I don't care if my audience really is the six people that I claim that it is. By gosh, you know, I want to have impact in the lives of those six people who are regular listeners. Carl, this is your shout out. Hey, <laughs> Carl's uh, Carl's listener uh, number, uh, I think he's uh, number four. He's brought a couple others to the, to the table for me. But the bottom line is, we need money to live. And I think it's perfectly acceptable for people to make money. In fact, I'm, I'm happy for people who make scads of money because like the article here points out... Many of those people turn around and put that money to good use. They allow it to flow through their hands rather than just into their hands. There's a lot of philanthropy that goes on just out of sight. But if you're measuring your success purely in money and not in time spent with family or impact you're having on the people around you, maybe it's time to reconsider why exactly do we do what we do? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you could join me today. I got a couple of different things I want to share with you. Um, first one I'm going to share here. This Some people may misconstrue this as, hey, what are you doing? You standing up for people who, you know, were rioting and insurrecting or whatever you'd call it at the, at the Capitol back on January 6th. No, but uh, I, I am a person who, who takes the truth pretty seriously in the sense that I don't think you can you can make clear, informed decisions unless you actually have some facts from which to work. And this is uh, one of my biggest pet peeves, is a lot of the information delivery systems out there, a lot of the media, and I'm talking particularly the heritage media, is not a good source of truth. It's a great source of knowing you know what you're supposed to believe, and this is the narrative, these are the approved opinions that you can hold, you know, that you can safely discuss. But every so often, something slips through, and I'm like, how could people not see this? Case in point. Here's a headline. This is from Conservative Treehouse. And it was actually, they're, they're reporting on something that is being reported by Reuters. So, lest you think, oh, well, yeah, there's a bunch of conservatives getting together and just, you know, writing opinion pieces. No, actually, a, a, a news organization, Reuters, is now documenting that prosecutors, federal prosecutors, are now backing away from statements and charges against the January 6th protesters. Now, isn't that interesting? The article says, interesting that Reuters would outline the walkbacks. Even more interesting that the details of the walkbacks seem to prove that the United States Department of Justice never actually intended to win any of these cases but instead just wanted to advance a political narrative about extremists through their earlier statements. The approach of building a political narrative through false accusations and overcharging in the Department of Justice is the essence of lawfare. I've not heard that term before, but I love it. I'm adopting it right now. The government has endless taxpayer resources to fuel their political weaponization of the judiciary. And then the process of the charges becomes the punishment by design. Meaning, when someone is charged, and we'll just use, for example, people who were there at the Capitol on January 6th, not the ones who forced their way in, but once the barricades had been put aside, once the velvet ropes had been moved, once the police officer was waving, go ahead, go ahead, walk on in, walked in, took selfies, you know, hee hee, look at this, we're in the Capitol. These are the people who are being drained financially, sometimes physically detained under false pretense charged with outrageous acts of terrorism and and conspiracy against the United States government. And then the DOJ walks backwards when the judges finally ask for proof. So the process is the punishment for political affiliation. That means the DOJ is fully weaponized. And if you look, you can clearly see this taking place. This is what the Reuters article said. Prosecutors made some serious claims after the deadly U.S. Capitol attack It was deadly in the sense that a Capitol Police officer killed an unarmed protester right there, you know, in the Capitol. That's true. That was deadly. There were some other people who died of strokes, heart attacks and the like, but uh, the real deadly part, the deadly violence, that was on the part of government. Okay, that's, that's my annotation. Prosecutors had made some serious claims saying they had evidence rioters planned to kill elected officials, suggesting a Virginia man at the building received directives to gas lawmakers, and another accusing, accusing another suspect of directing mayhem on January 6th with encrypted messages. 
but the Justice Department has since acknowledged in court hearings that some of its evidence concerning the riot carried out by a mob of supporters of former President Donald Trump to try to overturn his election loss is less damning than it initially indicated. Say what? On January 19th, prosecutors said they believe Thomas Caldwell, a retired U.S. Navy officer from Virginia, had a, quote, leadership role within the Oath Keepers. So the FBI, in a criminal complaint, described Facebook messages Caldwell allegedly sent and received while at the Capitol, including one urging him to turn on the gas and tear up the floorboards. All the members are in the tunnels under the Capitol. Seal them in. Turn on the gas, it read. A prosecutor in Florida read those words aloud in February in a bid to convince a judge to detain two of Caldwell's co-defendants. Prosecutors now acknowledge Caldwell was not even a dues-paying member of the Oath Keepers and that they lack evidence that he ever entered the Capitol. Wow, all that thunder and drama for nothing? And there are also questions about the Facebook messages. Caldwell's lawyer said in a March 10th court filing, these messages were sent by two men who were more than 60 miles away at the time and had no connection to the Oath Keepers. The comments were apparently satirical, albeit tasteless, his lawyer said, and Caldwell never responded to them. Interesting. So this, this pattern of main justice overcharging based on fabricated or overblown claims is consistent with their exact same activity in the Trump-Russia investigation. Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein charged fictitious characters in Russia, then buried the entire indictment of a dozen people in the National Security Division, never to be heard from again after July 13, 2018. Of course, just from the indictment itself, the media had the talking points they needed. Interesting stuff here. I'll have a link to this, and there's some great links within that article that are worth your time as well. It reminds me of uh, another case of overcharging, and I mean ridiculously overcharging the defendants. And I'm thinking of Ammon Bundy and Ryan Bundy and others, uh, not only in uh, Malheur, Oregon, but also in Bunkerville. I had the privilege of actually sitting in on the uh, trial in uh, Las Vegas for the stuff that happened at Bunkerville. And let's just say it didn't end well for the government. Full acquittal in Oregon, uh, what would have been full acquittal in Las Vegas, but the government uh, saw what was happening, recognized how much egg it had on its face, and opted instead for the judge to dismiss with prejudice the charges against the Bundys. Now, I'm not asking you, please believe the Bundys were absolutely right in everything. You are entitled to make up your own mind on this. But what I am trying to point out here is that uh, there's, there's legitimacy to the idea that prosecutors likely exaggerated, overcharged, and then when asked to deliver on the evidence, were unable to do so. What does that tell you when justice serves the interests of the state rather than the interests of the people, which is what government is supposed to be serving in the first place? I know, I just planted, planted a seed of doubt. But if you nurture that seed of doubt and you let it grow into a healthy sense of skepticism, it will serve you well, at least for any dealings you have with government, politicians, bureaucrats, etc. Speaking of government, politicians, and bureaucrats, I'm also going to include in today's show notes um, a wonderful retrospective explaining exactly what was done to us over the last year regarding lockdowns and how it wasn't exactly a favor on, be, on the part of our benevolent overlords. James Bovard is a very experienced and very 
uh, clear and convincing writer. I don't know how long he's been at what he's doing, but uh, when, when he writes something, I take the time to read it because I think he has a pretty clear grasp. Um, and, and this is a, a lockdown tyranny retrospective that uh, provides ample evidence that what has been done to us in the form of these lockdowns over the past year is tyranny. Now, I don't understand exactly why there's this quirk of human nature um, where people, and I mean a majority of people, seem to grasp for any reason, it's just the slightest sliver of a reason, that they can keep on believing that what government's doing to us really is for our own good. It's not tyranny. This, is, this had to be done. I mean, what is that? Is that Stockholm Syndrome? I don't know what it is, but it's very, very evident. And the greatest evidence is when you look at the places, you know, the states and the cities and localities that have said, hey, uh, there's no longer a mask mandate. And people still clamor. Oh, but I'm going to wear mine and I'm going to still get mad at people who aren't wearing theirs. Oh, my goodness. By the way, there was a great clip the other day of uh, Ted Cruz taking questions from reporters. And maybe it's just because I'm, I'm becoming a little bit cynical as I watch some of the stuff that happens in Washington. So much is political melodrama. But as, as Ted Cruz steps up to the bank of microphones and he's not wearing a mask, you know, there's different people in the background, some masked, some aren't. And one of the reporters in what I guess was kind of a virtue signal slash a quick shame slap at him said, uh, sir, would you please mind putting on a mask? And Ted Cruz very politely but firmly said, I'm not going to wear a mask while I'm talking to the TV cameras. We're all vaccinated here. Uh, we're, we're all immunized. So uh, if you don't feel good about it, he goes, you can always take a step back. I was like, all right, <laughs> good for you, Ted Cruz. Anyhow, you're going to find a lot of great reading in today's show notes. With that, I will encourage you, go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on the show notes, spend a little bit of time looking through the various articles. I promise you, you won't have to agree with them all, and I'm not expecting you to agree with any of them, actually, but you will find some great food for thought. You'll also find there's a link there in the show notes to subscribe to my podcast, and if you deem it a good idea, I would encourage you to consider becoming a Patreon and a monthly supporter of this program financially. And I'll thank you in advance. This is The Brian Hyde Show.